Boom shakalaka, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters around the world. It is your chocolate Nubian soul brother, the esoteric noetic. And we are about to interview none other than Vin Armani. He's waiting ever so patiently in Las Vegas. About to uh, talk to yours truly, the esoteric noetic, about what's going on in the liberty movement, in the world of cryptocurrencies, in the world of crypto savagery, which is a term that you may not be familiar with, but you shall certainly be familiar with after this podcast. Vin Armani is a crypto savage amongst many things, and uh, we're going to try to connect with him and get this podcast rolling. So buckle up, bitches. This shit's about to get real live. Let's do this. Boom shagalaka. Okay. All right, well, we're calling him. He's just uh, nicked up for a bit. He said he'd be back in a few minutes. So let's just uh, give this a couple of minutes before we call Vin Armani again. Now, I recently read Vin Armani's book, Self-Ownership, which we're going to get into. It is a book discussing the philosophy of libertarianism, the, the philosophy of self-ownership, philosophy of morality. Anyway, I think that's him right now. All right, let's do this thing. Okay. So uh, I'm a little new to... Google Hangout, so bear with me as I get this thing ready to roll. Okay. Try calling him again. Okay, let's do this thing. Boom shakalaka, Ben Armani. What's up? Wow. Can you uh, hear me and can you hear me and see me? Okay. I can hear you. I can, I can see you fine. You. This is definitely a background I'm very familiar with. You got the uh, the baby vodka there. Fantastic, brother. How you doing, man? I'm good. I'm really, really good. It's uh, it's been an interesting, an interesting but good day so far. I would say, and the weather is great, so that always helps. Fantastic, brother. I really appreciate you taking the time to uh to, to do this podcast with me. I've been following your show for quite some time now, and. Uh, you are definitely one of the key figures, I would say, in the liberty movement, in the crypto world. I think you have a, a combination of many different uh, things going on that make it a really interesting uh, podcast, your, your podcast, The Vin Armani Show. I find that you touch on so many things related to liberty, obviously cryptocurrencies, uh, and your understanding of reality TV shows, I think, gives you a really good insight into how the media projects this, uh, this orchestra that is going on. I, I wanted to get into that, but... Let me introduce you, brother. Ladies and gentlemen, you are looking at the, the sexy face of Vin Armani. Vin Armani is, is an entrepreneur, but I feel like that word doesn't really cut it out. This guy is what I call an entrepreneur. The guy is involved in so many different things. He is a public speaker, an author, a music DJ, high-end male escort. You're probably familiar with the show 
Gigolos, which I, I've started going through up to season five at the moment. Very fascinating. Hold so on. we're, we're going to get into that. Uh, the guy is a podcaster. you got to check out his show, The Vin Armani Show. Uh, great hub for what's going on in the liberty movement, cryptocurrencies. And he breaks down a lot of stuff, has a very prophetic way of looking at the, uh, the current world. And he's also a reality TV star, obviously from the show Gigolos. And mo- most importantly, Vin Armani is a crypto savage. This is a term that I have only recently started using. Uh, after reading your book, Self-Ownership, I have a newfound appreciation for it now because I wanted to get into the, the etymology of, of well, okay. crypto savagery because reading your book, I, I understand a bit more about the term savage, how it's basically someone that is living outside of the, the mainstream society and obviously crypto, which is a, a key part in the liberty movement. I feel like it is the perfect term to to uh, address what's going on in the world and how to uh, to make it change. So, Vin Armani, let's get into it. What is crypto savagery? How does it relate to the liberty movement, your philosophy, and what you're doing? My brother, let's do it. Okay, so the term crypto savage I first coined in my book, Self-Ownership. It's the very, very last little section, and so it's, uh, it's sort of the jumping-off point for my next book. But to us the savage is as opposed to the civilian so it's a it's a statement on culture so there's savages and civilians and a civilian is basically somebody who is with it it comes from the word civis which is uh the city and the idea was uh it's a they're both latin roots so it's the idea that these are the people living in the city who operate under your own culture uh the savages which comes from the latin root silva which is uh the forest uh, and then to the French Salvage, which is where this comes from, which is the wilderness. So these are the people who live in the wilderness. And the idea is that anyone who doesn't live in your city is a savage to you. And anyone who does live within your culture is a civilian. And so that is to say that someone from another city and another culture, they're not savages to each other. But you are a savage to them. And so as we've seen, particularly in the modern era, modern era and in the, the era of exploration in particular, we saw these, these rapid cultural evolutions that, that happened, particularly in the last 500 years. And it was all because of the interaction of the civilian or a subset of civilians, a particular special adventurous subset of civilians that interacted with these savage cultures and then brought those things in. So what are all the things that we're talking about? I mean, the Italians were intrepid explorers. Supposedly, at least apocryphally, Marco Polo brought pasta to Italy from China, right? And the tomato, which we, of course, associate with Italian food as well, is not native to Europe. That came from the New World, as did the potato, So the Irish had no potatoes before the New World had been discovered. Same goes with corn, which is grown throughout Russia. These are so what we see is that we see these massive and certainly America is is that I mean, the the United States is every single time there's been a, a group that has come in. First, they've been savages to the outside. And then it's like, you know, I'm from I'm from L.A. And the two staple cuisines there is basically Mexican food and sushi. Right when you when you just want to buy buy something cheap for lunch, it's Mexican food, and when you want an expensive dinner, it's sushi. Neither one of those is, is clearly American, uh, United States, uh, Anglo food. Right. So, 
What we've reached now, though, and this is the, the point that I'm getting to with the crypto savage, the, the word itself, obviously, we've got the savage, so we understand that. Crypto meaning hidden. Uh, that's, that's what the root word of crypto means. So cryptocurrency ah. comes from, of course, uh, it's a Greek root, uh, crypto, and it's the, the same root as crypt, right? So where you would bury people, it's, just, it's a hidden underground uh, concept. This is the concept. So a cryptocurrency is hidden money. Uh, cryptography is the art of hiding. It's, it's hidden writing. Technically, graphy is drawing. So like graffiti, same, same root. So mm -hmm. cryptography is hidden drawing or hidden writing. So codes. Uh, so when we talk about uh, cryptocurrency, we're talking about hidden money. And in many ways, that's, a, that's really, really accurate uh, for, for what it is. It's that, it's that economy that's operating in this, this shadowy uh, place, you know, to to the civilians. It's a savage economy, and so the idea that I that I, I'm exploring with uh, crypto savagery is, you know, we've reached a place now where we have a global culture. I mean, even the fact that you and I are having this conversation in real time, uh, you know, spanning the entire globe. This is just a reality. This is a normal reality for for everybody on the planet now. We have a global culture. We that 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 mixing is happening on a, a constant basis. So the question is, where does cultural where will cultural revolution come from? And I'm not talking about just cultural evolution. That's going to happen civilian to civilian, where over time slowly language changes, and over time slowly technology changes, and these things are these incremental changes. But I think that what we're seeing and what we're on the cusp of, and what people realize is. There's something happening, and it's happening very fast, and it's not incremental. It's a paradigm shift of how people understand their place in the world with each other, with the, their natural environment, with the solar system. I mean, now we have to deal with what is our relationship to other planets when we never really had to deal with that before in, in mass, right? So where is this coming from, though? Because there are no more savages. It's not coming from some group of people that's unreachable, that we don't know uh, what it is that they do. I mean, we have a global economy. We have a, a, essentially a global culture. You go to another country and you turn on the TV. You may not speak the language, but you understand, oh, here's their version of, uh, you know, uh, Britain's Got Talent. Here's their version of The Bachelor. Here's the, and it's in every single culture. So we, so we have this homogenous level. What I see happening is, and, and part of it is, it, it's come from, I think, a subset of the liberty community and some people associate it with that. But I think that that's just one part of it. It's also the cryptocurrency community. I think there's an aspect of a, a community of artists, a community of musicians. I mean, you've got a, a, a musical, these music subgenres that are able to come up, SoundCloud in particular, that are able to come up in this way that is separated out from the culture and then just burst onto the scene fully formed. This is what I call the crypto savage. So I, I think that there is a culture that is bubbling up, living parallel to the mother culture, as you could say, but yet invisible to the mother culture. And it's giving the mother culture fits. They don't understand, I think, the, the Trump-Clinton election and how that the election of Trump... Still, they're going on like, it was Russian bots, it was this, it was that. It's just they don't... Because the rules have changed... And this new crypto savage culture has enough and it's in the alternative media, it's in art, it's in music, it's in finance, it's in all of these places. They can't really put a name on it. They don't understand the rules that it's operating under. 
I'm trying to ex- start to explore and articulate some of the things that we are already embodying as people who identify with this culture. And um, so, so that's it. I mean, I, I, I think it's as good of a name as any until we re- really figure out what's going on. No doubt. That is one powerful name and one powerful exploration into the concept of crypto savagery. In fact, I was so moved by that analysis, man. I, I feel like I need to change my, my title. I use the term esoteric noetic, which touches on a lot of the themes within crypto savagery in, in regards to esoteric, that which is hidden and um, uh, noetic, a, a form of like knowledge or science. And I, I feel like crypto savagery more encompasses what I'm trying to do. I mean, it's basically a... a, a the movement is to try to uh, to expand your consciousness, to try to move into to realms that aren't fully understood by the masses. And I find one of the fascinating things about crypto savagery is that it's tied specifically, I would imagine, to the liberty movement. And these people are at the forefront of this. This is being done with cryptocurrencies. I mean, one of the most fascinating things uh, I find that's going on at the moment, and you, you definitely are, I would say, one of the key figures in, is the, the realm of Bitcoin, Bitcoin cash, cryptocurrencies, and uh, I know that you recently uh, you put together Cointex, which is a, a, an amazing app that allows, it makes things a lot easier to, uh, to transact with. Perhaps if we can get into that a little, because I've, um, I've been following Cointex a little. I, I understand it's basically an SMS. Uh, uh, it allows you to, to send cryptocurrencies via SMS, and I think one of the, the difficult things at the moment is that when we're dealing with cryptocurrencies, a lot of the people aren't crypto savages and they find it difficult and if this thing is going to take on it needs to be easy enough for your grandmother to use so what is Cointex how is it paving the way for crypto savagery well first off you're in Australia right absolutely so we already we're our private beta is in Australia when we're done with this I'll give you the I'll actually send you some some funds and you can start playing with it right away oh fantastic one of the benefits of uh, interviewing Ben Armani. Awesome, man. I'll, I'll be sure to spread it on my podcast. Yeah, it's good. Um, well, you know, the in, and that's, but one important thing is, and in, in, in discussing this, and I think that it's a good jumping off point, I, I've been a software developer. I've been a hacker for about 25 years and a professional software developer for 15. And that's what I was doing when the reality show thing kind of came along. And then I, I took a, a detour. So this is me going back to, to my sort of, uh, professional proficiency, if you similar will, operating gear. I actually I so, studied software engineering. Uh, I actually went into reality TV shows, uh, but only a few years recently. So I, I see a lot of commonalities there. But please go on. Yeah. The, so so then you know that there is a huge difference between trying to explain a vision of a, particularly something that's a relatively new uh, technology concept and just letting people play with it. The difference is night and day of actually letting someone have the experience. I mean, my first experience with Uber is testament to that. And I think a lot of people that's true for as well. You could explain it all day, but to actually have the experience and then to realize, oh, wow, this is you see that it's it's an absolute game changer. So the question, I think, ultimately, that uh, that I first sought out to to answer or the, the problem that I first sought, sought out to solve with this particular product was you know, I've been involved in cryptocurrency since 2012. December 2012 was when I bought my first Bitcoin. And so I've had a great many years of trying to talk with people about cryptocurrency. And, you know, so often when it's one-on-one, I talk to them and they're like, okay, I kind of get it, but like, where do I even get, so where do I get some Bitcoin? Like, how do I get some Bitcoin? How do I get some cryptocurrency? And it's always been, 
okay, well, uh, take out your phone and download uh, this app. And then they open up the app and it's like, okay, now you're going to need to save your private key and then you're going to your backup phrase and you're going to need to do all of this. And then finally, maybe 15 minutes in, I get a chance to actually send some money to their wallet. And that's a long process. And from there, it's also sometimes very daunting for people because the interface is weird. Like, what's this QR code? They don't know what, you know, is this safe? Like, how do I, how do I look at this? They, it's, it becomes very difficult. So in this case, that same sort of question, when I talk with people, the, the power of this is that somebody says, oh, well, where do I get some cryptocurrency? And I say, well, what's your phone number? And within you know, 35 seconds, I'm like, okay, check your phone. I've just sent them funds. And then from there, that's their wallet. Their wallet's actually built on their phone. So people can go and check out cointex.io. They can look at, at how the technology works. But that's the problem that we're trying to solve. Now, what it has lent itself to is the realization that, okay, well, this actually means you don't need a smartphone and you don't even need to have internet. You just need access to be, if you can text, you're good. And this takes cryptocurrency to a whole realm and a whole group of individuals throughout the world who maybe have feature phones. And that's, a, that's billions of people who for them up until now, real world sort of purchases with cryptocurrency, which is what I'm all about. It, it's been just unavailable, completely unavailable. And also, the reason why we use Bitcoin Cash is, you know, I, I initially had built many of these libraries back in 2015 on the Bitcoin blockchain. There was no Bitcoin Cash at the time. And that was at a time when you could push through transactions onto the blockchain with literally no mining fee whatsoever. So they were really, truly free and they had zero confirmation uh, where you could use it with zero confirmation, which is gone now in BTC. So the fees, you know, when I moved away from this and, and decided we were going to use Bitcoin Cash and started developing Cointex, the fees for uh, regular bit or legacy Bitcoin BTC, they were, you know, $10 average. Now they're even $2. But I say, but how do people who make $5 a day, how, how do we onboard them if it's going to cost them $2 to even send 25 cents? Exactly. Which is... The, this is just the basic structure of, of how the blockchain works. So it has to be on a network and Bitcoin Cash has sub one cent fees. So it had to be on a network if we were going to do this and truly roll it out and, and roll it out as a, a solution that the entire world could use and use easily. It had to be on a sub one cent fee network and, and Bitcoin Cash, I think we're about to see in the next couple of weeks, we're about to see Bitcoin Cash decouple from uh, BTC, a lot, the biggest um, so BitPay and Coinbase on their merchant solution now accept it. So this has taken some, I mean, I, it's, you can pay for uh, uh, Microsoft, you could pay on the Xbox network, you could pay for games in BCH now. That was just announced earlier this week. So it's Microsoft, like when you exactly. get players yeah. on that level, then you see, okay, this is a, this is a, a real thing. So, so that's, I mean, that's our... That's our goal. Our, our goal is to, to provide actual technological solutions. I've, for, many, for a long time now, I've said there are no political solutions. I just don't believe that to be the case. And uh, so Jacques Ellul and the Technological Society, great book. He's got a quote that says, 
There are no political solutions, only technological ones, and the rest is propaganda. And so I just don't even want to play propaganda. I'm like, we have the capability to build the future. I think that's a part of crypto savagery is just to say, no, we let's just build it. And then let's see what happens. Absolutely. Um, and let's do it for purpose, but let's do it for profit too. It, they don't have to be separated from each other. Like if there's uh, – you know, Austrian economics is so key in this way that it's like if there is value, if people see value in X thing, if people see value in ending poverty, then that means people will pay to end poverty. And clearly they do. Clearly they do. So why not create a technological solution that – will help to alleviate poverty and at the same time will make the person who helped to alleviate poverty rich. I think that's a very, to start making these sorts of economic incentives starts to take the greatest minds and have them start to work on things that they otherwise wouldn't because, you know, somebody who's a a hot shit software developer doesn't want to go work for a nonprofit. They want to go work for Google. And so let's start making the Googles that actually change the world in the way that we want. That's where it, So this is, I believe, part of crypto savagery. This is, I believe, what's now possible. We can start thinking this way because we can crowdfund. We can do ICOs. We can self-fund a lot of this because the infrastructure is good enough to, to do it and it's cheap enough. So, so yeah, that's – I mean, Cointext, I think, is is – more than just a product for cryptocurrency, it's really a broader vision of maybe what future businesses and future project, projects can start to look like. Then that is that is powerful. Sounds amazing. But look, I want to play devil's advocate over here. All right. So so first of all, one, the security. I mean, when people think about transacting money via SMS, I mean, the the first thing that comes to mind with a lot of people, myself included, that aren't familiar with the technology behind this, I mean. Is that safe? And, and two, I mean, you, you're a capitalist. Is, is, is that – that's bad, man. That's bad, man. And, and Vin Armani. Vin Armani. Um, let, let's, let's tackle those two, those two issues. I mean because okay. I, I think they, they tie into what you're about. And, and sure. three, if you, if you mind, if feel inclined to, to chime in on this, you're supporting Bitcoin Cash. Bitcoin Cash right. is centralized. Bcash, Bcash, Bcash. How dare you, Vin? You, you're, a, you're a shill. God damn it! I I was thinking this whole time that you you actually knew what you were talking about. Do you mind just spe- well I'm playing devil's advocate here? Um, why Bitcoin Cash? I mean, why not Bitcoin Core? And look, man, we we, we need to just give everything give give everything away. We can't have this capitalistic mindset. That's only breeding it. all of the the negativity, man. I love it. <laughs> well, I, I, will, I will say this about uh, SMS. So uh, there is a company called Mpesa. That's in Kenya. Africa. Yes, very familiar Kenya. with that. I'm from Ghana, West Africa myself. In 10 African nations. Uh, very, very popular. Uh, in 2016, they did 6 billion transactions over SMS, financial transactions tied to the banks. So this is not like an unproven method for, for using, uh, for transacting cash. Um, we've, we've laid out how our security works within our system. And basically, this is a user. It's using SMS as a user interface to a what is fundamentally a traditional wallet that would be like any other software hot wallet. Uh, so people can go go and check that out. The other thing that I would say about this is, uh, and Thomas Sowell quote: uh, "There are in economics, there are no solutions, only trade offs." Right. So this is there is a trade off here for sure. I mean. Uh, 
if someone manages to get a hold of your phone and they can text on your phone, in theory, they could text themselves money if you had money in your your coin text balance. Uh, we we view this as a as a spending a casual spending wallet, right? That we don't anticipate people to store th- even thousands of dollars on this thing. It's just a store hundred bucks. It's cheap. The same the amount of money that you would put in in terms of cash and put in your wallet for for walking around. Um, so, but it's super fast. But there are a great many. The wonderful thing about cryptocurrency is there are so many solutions. So, the solution that you want for the maximum safety, I don't have my savings on on Cointext, and I'm the developer. You know, I have uh, I have paper wallets, I have hardware wallets. There's all of those solutions. So, um, that's how I would answer the first thing. Okay. When it comes to, um, I'll do the I'll do the 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 Bcash last. All when right. it comes to the capitalism part. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, it's just, for me, it's a very important, uh, to see, to understand what it is that we're dealing with when we deal with cryptocurrency. So the internet revolution was really about the transmission of data, uh, and the global transmission of data and built on top of that is this cryptocurrency revolution or the blockchain revolution. And that's all about the global transmission of value. And capitalism isn't a, it's, it's not a system that was ever laid out by somebody. It's only ever been described. It's not a prescription. It's a description, right? So you can prescribe certain policies that a state can do, like within a capitalist environment, uh, which is even socialists do that, right? Even socialism is built on top of cap off the idea that capitalism does exist. Even Marxist communism is built on it's a it's a reaction to capitalism but the capitalism is just a it's really just human action you know as a, any uh student of of mises and austrian economics it's really just a description of when you have value and you have people trying to exchange value between one another in a non-violent way you end up over time with what we've got that's it if it's a and and in a violent way you end up with the state Right. So these are the two uh, opposing forces. Most of the time, people, it's very expensive to engage in violence to try to get value out of the world. That's a very ex- expensive proposition for any individual. Most people would prefer uh, to say, okay, yeah, let me try to do this peacefully. Mm-hmm. And that's what we do. We go and we uh, work a job, we negotiate with the shopkeeper, we're doing it every day. So. I'm a capitalist only because I look around and I see people exchanging value peacefully and I understand how cultures evolve and I understand how systems operate. And I'm like, well, that's the, that's the system I'm in until somebody shows me that I'm not and that the rest of us are not, then I'm, I guess, I guess you could call me a capitalist or you could just call me a realist. Mm -hmm. Now in terms of uh, Bitcoin versus Bitcoin cash, here we go. The scaling debate. This is going to divide our audience right now. <laughs> it's it's uh you know it's not for me. There's it's not even a debate. I I say this. This it's cryptocurrency is a free market, and there are particular uses that I personally need. So for my personal use of cryptocurrency, because I use it as a currency, I have products that I sell, and uh, I spend it. So I, I take it in and I spend it. I use it as currency. It's the same way, I mean, I'm an entrepreneur. It comes in, I, I 
send it back out, whether that's reinvesting in my business, whether that's um, spending it on the things that I need in, in my day to day. I do not, I have my savings, but then, you know, I'd like to, to spend my money. I'm not speculating in this particular industry. And so what I need is I need instant transactions. And as a developer with all the projects that I'm working on, I need very low fees. Now for other people, transactions that take a long time and that have high fees, there are individuals for whom that's actually what they need out of this particular product. And that's fine. And if that's what you need, then there's BTC there. It's ready for you. You can go ahead and use it. But for me, there's the network effect primarily. And the reason why I don't use people like, well, why don't you use, then just use Dogecoin or just well, use Litecoin. Litecoin. Well, Litecoin's yeah. fees are still too expensive, That right? They're even to 25 cents as compared to, uh, you know, a third of a cent. There's a lot of di you lose out on so many things because it microtransactions, all of that, right? Our fees, so our fees for Cointext are basically uh, ten satoshis per byte, which is ten times more than the than the minor fee. So that really ends up with most people having a fee of some a total fee for sending money of somewhere around four cents. So that's with us included. If I use Litecoin. That's, I have to increase the overall cost to the customer by, what, five times, six times more? It doesn't even make any sense. I mean, even if I even at, for, at that same cost, I'd rather just take it as my own profit margin. That's stupid. Why would I cut into my profits that way? It doesn't even make sense for essentially the same functionality. Um, and yeah, not but, even because but Vin, it, it's centralized though like fair enough you know it might be a little cheaper but the, the government's going to come and destroy our, our our bitcoin unless of course we use bitcoin core i mean bitcoin no, not bitcoin no. core there is that's, no bitcoin core man you bitcoin cash people you you you've, you've surfed out <laughs> no but let's it's, address it's let's of, address the issue of centralization it's a, lot of, it's a lot of propaganda right the, no doubt. the the decentralization idea is it's really, it's really quite silly uh, because here's a market. And as soon as, let's say that, let's say that China came in and, and crushed all the, all the mining. Let's say that happened. Okay, it would be very difficult for a short period of time because the difficulty rate would be uh, ridiculous. It would be hard to get blocks put through. But it's, first off, it's not like that's just going to happen out of the blue. And second off, that that creates a huge demand for mining to go um, for mining to go online in other places. I think if people want to see what this really looks like, I, I, it's I, it's what I've said many times about this is this is a, a realm where there are two paradigms that are there, and there are rules of two games that are well established. One is software, and one is economics. And really, if you want to participate at the highest level in the world of blockchain, you should know how to code and you should have a, a strong background in economics, uh, at, at least to where you can be able to talk authoritatively about how markets move and why markets move in the way that they move. And if you don't have that, it's going to be very difficult for you to fully understand what's going on. On the economic side, I think it's, this is a global phenomenon. It's a, there's a global market when it comes to mining and I think that it's important to look at this in the way that the economics of mining looks. So you look at, for instance, oil.
the global oil production industry. And as prices change, so for instance, it, it's a dollar a barrel to get uh, oil out of the ground in Saudi Arabia. And it's about $30 a barrel to get it out of the oil sands and out of the fracking in North Dakota that they, they do. So when uh, global prices are lower than about $45 per barrel, they just shut down all of the, the, all of the oil production in North America for the most part. And then when it goes up, like when it shoots up to 100 or so, then it, it goes back online. And this is very much what – this is what we're going to see. There, there's a market. There's, there's no barrier to entry. There's nothing preventing miners from coming online. For every country that says, no, we don't want miners to, to operate here. China's got cheap energy. Yeah, but Iceland's got free energy. And it's cold. They've got geothermal. So they're worried about, oh, it's taking up so much electricity. Bitcoin's taking up so much electricity. Well, that means that there's a further demand for electricity. I'm sitting in the middle of a desert where there are multiple huge solar plants in this desert. And then the rest of this desert, there's so much ground that solar power could be put on here. It could, and then they could stick underground. They could stick more mining rigs. Like this is a situation where the any de, any centralization. First off, it's decentralized by design. That's it's decentralized by design. It's you can only centralize it in a de facto manner. But those people who have this is what I've often brought up. So let's say, let's imagine that Jihan Wu. Uh, who is uh, the head of Bitmain, right? This is the China connection to this whole thing. And that's why they say, oh, it's centralized. Well, he also controls, at least that we know of, 16% of the mining on BTC. But people would say, because there are these unknown miners that, that are not tagged, that they don't know, let's say Jihan Wu actually controls over 51% of the network, which is the, the, the centralization claim. Let's say that he does. Now, what can you do with 51%? Basically, you can double spend. That's what you can do with 51%, is that you can uh, rewrite blocks as they come in. But what happens if you double spend? If, you double, if, if there starts to be these double spends on the network of these vast amounts of money, everybody's going to stop using the network. Everybody's going to move away from that network. It's going to the, – the price of uh, any network where that happens – it's going to fall through the floor. It's going to go to zero. So for someone to think that that is the motivation of an individual, and this is why I say you got to know economics and you probably should should call yourself a capitalist. And you, you got to know logic. <laughs> Unfortunately, this is so oriented with religiosity. Like, yeah. Yeah. Why would you, if you're the biggest miner, you're probably one of the biggest holders of this particular token. You've invested a ton of time and energy in mining. You have all of this equipment. Why on earth would you take an action that did anything besides increase the value of your overall holdings? And what is the action that you take to increase the value of your holdings? You own 51%, control 51% of the network, secure the hell out of the network. That means you can prevent a 51% attack from ever happening by you just not doing it. And by doing that, it actually makes it more secure. And so this is the same reason why, why doesn't the CEO of Bank of America just start emptying out people's accounts? He could, he could do it. Why, you know, why doesn't the, the, somebody at the Fed just, well, they do print money, but why don't they print it off the books? 
They totally could. Or someone at the Treasury. Why don't they print it off the books and do that? Because it's like because that devalues your entire operation. And so I'm not centralization in terms of someone having 51% of the mining. First off, I think that's a foregone conclusion. It's a foregone conclusion in any business that has any amount of value, especially when you're talking about billions of dollars, because over time, consolidation, right? There used to be hundreds of car companies in the U.S., and then it went down to four, right? There used to be hundreds of search engines on the internet. How many search engines are there now? How many platforms for... uh, for putting, I, I've worked at several of the early startups that were uh, video and audio-based social networks. How many of those do really exist now? You've got YouTube, and then what? Then what? Like you've got some some minor ones that the Liberty community is interested in. You've got Vimeo for people who want to re- put really high-quality content on, but you can even do that on YouTube. Who else? Who else? How many social networks are there? There used to be. There were hundreds. In the days of MySpace, everybody was trying to build one. Now, how many are there that are of, and most of them are owned by the same three, four people. So consolidation happens in any industry where there's a lot of money. Eventually, mining is going to be the same way. But these are going to be venture-backed companies with tons of investment money thrown at it. And these investors are not going to want, it's not going to be worth it to do a 51% attack. And what? You, you double even if it's a billion dollars, oh, there's $2 billion, and then as soon as we found out about that, boom, the, the price fell out, and now what we just double spent is worth nothing. So it's, it's yeah, it's just, it's, it's propaganda. It's pure propaganda. I, I hear what you're saying completely, Ben. I, I think a lot of this stuff, it comes down to people's philosophies. I find that uh, you find a lot of the libertarians, the anarcho-capitalists, from my experience, anyway, they tend to be uh, leaning towards Bitcoin cash support, the uh, the original movers of, uh, of cryptocurrencies. They've obviously moved towards the Bitcoin cash fork. And I found because there's been such a, uh, a move uh, where the general population has, has gotten involved in Bitcoin, the, uh, the influence in Bitcoin core has become mainstream, which I think reflects this socialistic, the socialist philosophy. I think a lot of the people that are in this camp are more concerned about power and people not having too much power when within the anarcho-capitalist model, it's about competition, provided you're not using... Um, fraud or violence, uh, so to speak, uh, it's completely acceptable. So a lot of it, I think, comes down to that and then the religiosity that seems to go on. I found that, I mean, I'm, like yourself, a huge student of, uh, of history, and you, you see these themes that emerge over and over again when something becomes big enough, an ideology, and there's some kind of slight difference in opinion, which, uh, which creates this massive fork, so to speak. Obviously, we have the many denominations of, of Christianity, and uh, it creates this war. And one of the things I found, I, I just want to briefly talk, talk about this, because this is one of the key things I wanted to get in with you, is some of the figures in this particular movement, I think, because they're connected to one side or the other, that's what's allowing people to, uh, to form their opinions. In regards to Roger Ver, Craig Wright, Jihan Hu who you've uh, uh, just spoken about, uh, you were the, one of the first people I found that was um, was was supporting, I would say, Roger Ver with, with technical, logical arguments. A, a lot of people were, were just saying these uh, 
making these accusations about him, and I fell for them initially, and then I actually went and did some research. I'm a big fan of making my own decision, and time and time again, I kept on founding that there was no substance to it, you know. Um, Roger Ford's a brick Ford story, he's pumping and dumping and all this kind of stuff, there's no evidence for it. Um, I want to speak about, well, two of the main figures, because I think one of the biggest things going on at the moment is, well, it's all about characters, and uh, I would say Roger Ver, one of the key figures, the first investor of Bitcoin. Um, why is it the one you support him? Or oh, it seems as if you're you're. I don't know what your situation is with him. I don't know if that's a, a correct. All right. Well, fair enough. Well, let, let me let me uh, perhaps if you could just address because I've listened to your podcast and there I, I've seen you address many of the accusations that are made against him, and I guess a lot of people in their subjective mindset would see you because you're defending him as. Um, not necessarily supporting him, but at least not wanting to uh, to buy into the arguments. And Craig Wright, you've obviously had the pleasure of interviewing Craig Wright, and he he's one of the um, the, the the contentious figures in the Bitcoin world. And I, I'd be whereas I realize it is a sensitive topic. Um, I I do I would like to get your opinion um, just in regards to uh, not necessarily their character, but the uh, the attacks that have been made about these figures. Because I think this is what sure. it very much comes down to. Well, I, you know, I've been thinking a lot lately about the the, the BTC core troll phenomenon has been uh, it's been very interesting, and so uh, what what I've come to is this idea that you've got a group of people, and we we have this software. It's it's a unique in terms of communities of people who are gathered around open source software, which I have been for a very long time as a software developer. And what's interesting about it is, is that the majority of people interested in this space cannot code. That's a very important thing to realize because if you can't code and you're in this space, there's basically only four things that you can do. You can buy, you can sell, you can hold, and you control. That's it. Those are your only options. The only activity that you can take to change anything. And when I say troll, that, that's, that includes everything from very high-level creation of content that's, that's specific to uh, trying to move the market in a certain way or trying to, let's say, it's propaganda, right? It's propaganda at a high level and it's propaganda at a low level that because we're talking about the psychology of the markets, that certain memes can move a market up certain memes can move the market down and so that's how you can participate you can buy you can sell you can hold and you control the people who can code in this space can actually do some things that affect the market in a different way and that is they can actually create some solutions and those are the places where the real over time where this is really going to play out Right. So where it's playing out now is it's playing out on this propaganda level, because honestly, there has not been very much movement in the technology in the last two years. Like if you look at where things stand in the last two years, not a lot of movement. People had thought that, you know, these new coins and the new tokens that were coming out, each of them came out with some sort of promise. Almost none of them have had any of that utility recognized that they came out and did their uh, initial coin offerings on. Ethereum has uh, a lot of promise, but we're also seeing that it, it uh, is going to take a long time to, 
to, I mean, the people who are at Swarm City is a prime example. Like those guys are great friends of mine, and and their uh, their platform is basically like a, allows for a decentralized Uber, a decentralized Airbnb, all of this. They're using deep, 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 and from the beginning have been using deep into uh, Ethereum and also uh, IPFS and other decentralized services. And they realized getting into Ethereum that they were actually going to have to build a lot of solutions into Ethereum because of how lacking it was. And that's happening, but that's going to happen very slowly. Um, So, you know, until Bitcoin Cash, now we're having a lot more innovation in terms of the technology side of that. But up until that point, I mean, to, to specifically deal with Roger, when it came to the propaganda, it's not that I support Roger. I actually think that the way that Roger has approached this whole thing in many ways has not been very smart. It's entertaining, it's though. Yeah, it, it is. It's, it's incredibly entertaining. Um, but the question is, is it does it help or does it hinder? Mm-hmm. Um, it's quite a in many ways, some of the things that Roger has done in attempting to... And, and look, I'm not saying this to, to try to make some knock on him. He's doing the best that he can. But some of those the ways that he's done things, some of the people that he's chosen to engage with and how he's chosen to engage with them is not something I personally would have done. But, you know, he's such a, he's a, he's a polarizing figure. He's given ammunition to the propaganda on the other side. And sometimes you're better off not giving the ammunition. So it's not that one, he and I are ideologically aligned in terms of, he is a true, true libertarian. Exactly. Stood by his values. This is not, Roger Veer is not some like flash in the pan libertarian. This guy's been at this for decades. He's gone to jail over his beliefs. Uh, he's been targeted by governments. He's this is part of why he's got I, I don't want to call it a chip on his shoulder, but he certainly is has a certain passion that is very personal about the adoption of cryptocurrency and bringing this to fruition to free people for the basis of liberty. And so that's where his I truly believe that that's where his passion comes from, understanding him, knowing him, getting a chance to talk with him, getting a, ch- a chance to kind of grill him on a few things. Um, that's, where I, that's where I believe his head is at. And so when I see, look, I, I, it doesn't matter whether I like somebody or not. It's very important to me that people understand, especially people who are listening to me as some sort of an authority on cryptocurrency. It's very important to me that what comes out of my mouth is as close to the truth as I understand it. And if that just so happens to align with what Roger is saying, then I'll say, well, this is what Roger's been saying. And if it aligns with something that if it's against what Roger's been saying, I'll say, well, you know what? Roger's actually wrong on this point. And that kind of brings us to Craig Wright, because he and I disagree on quite a few things, in particular, the role of intellectual property in this in this space. So I have no qualms about publicly arguing with Craig, which I do. And I have. Um, at the same time, he's making stronger moves, I think, than anybody else in terms of I, – I do know where his head is at. His head is at bringing traditional capital to bear on this project. And I think that that can be – we'll have to see whether that's positive or negative. But I do understand the role of capital in moving a movement forward. you got to fund it somehow. And he's making this decision to try to patent some things and in the hope that that will bring traditional capital, which is right. That's actually correct. 
that uh, venture capitalists, when they're looking at companies, your patent portfolio is a huge part of whether or not they're going to invest in you because they want to see, uh, you know, is somebody else going to be able to invest in a competitor or not? So he's trying to build a patent for- portfolio. And I, I get it. I don't, I don't agree with him. I guess the elephant in the room, though, uh, at least what is looming on so many people's minds, and uh, look, you don't have to comment on it. I realize it is a very, not only a contentious issue, but puts people in a camp. Yeah, but um, I guess it all stems from this whole Satoshi thing. And uh, look, you obviously had the pleasure of interviewing this guy. You're you're very familiar with uh, the story, no doubt, um, the evidence in regards to it. And you, uh, you, you don't have to answer this if you don't want to. But I would be curious. I mean, I already have my own my views, and I don't. At this point, I don't think any any anything that can be said is going to definitively change certain pe- certain individuals' minds. But I obviously respect your your viewpoint, the way in which you think. Um, regardless of whether or not I agree with, agree with you on everything, like I find that you're always very honest, and you you speak in a clear, logical uh, way. In the, in the same regard, that why you're saying that you, um, in regards to Roger, as to why you're not. I mean, essentially, you're not. A, against anything that he is saying specifically if it's not if it doesn't violate you know what you what you believe but um i guess what i'm asking is um in regards to satoshi and craig wright uh how do you feel about the 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 claim if you want to get into that well craig certainly has the technical background to be able to be satoshi that's that's the first thing so you know if you're ticking off the the boxes circumstantially yeah uh, he definitely has the technical background. There's a significant amount of uh, correspondence from Satoshi before he went dark that is not in the white paper that was on forums, etc. And there are certain things about that that correspondence, certain terms and words that were used, and they're used in, in casual conversation. Uh, one in particular is a, a constant use of the term maths, the, the plural M-A-T-H-S, uh, which basically says that whoever this is is, uh, is not an American because we don't use that term. So it, generally this would be a, a Br- British, uh, Australian, New Zealand, possibly Irish individual or somebody who was educated in British English. So could also be Indian, could potentially be you know uh, East Asian, Perhaps. Um, so, that, you know, there are some other aspects of that. At the same time, the libertarian bent of Satoshi from knowing Craig, and, I, and now I've gotten a chance to know Craig, you know, we communicate privately. Um, you know, I, I did not know him at that time. I don't know exactly where his head was at, but I do know that since that time, he has... Uh, had some run-ins, shall we say, with uh, with the state, the, with his native state of Australia, and uh, run-ins about taxes. And what I know about the many libertarian friends that I have is that often those sorts of things are the things that catalyze your libertarian views uh, and or take you from libertarian to anarchist. I know it's been some experiences that I've had with uh, with local government and my businesses that has catalyzed a lot of my own views. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't see that in Craig. So it's very rare for me, like, and this is something just speaking as a libertarian and knowing a lot of libertarians that uh, and knowing their histories, it's very rare that you meet somebody who um, 
was formerly a libertarian, libertarian enough that they would include in the Genesis block the uh, the little uh, note about the the bailouts the, the from the Times, the bailouts, the secret message in the Genesis block of Bitcoin. That type of person, and then having a run-in with Australian tax authorities that force them to have to live in Europe because of that, doesn't generally become the type of person who then wants to reach out and patent uh, voluntarily start to patent things and rely sure. on on government force. So, in that regard, I'm skeptical. I'm mm-hmm. skeptical, but that also does not mean that he could not. I, th- I think the the narrative that's being pushed now with this uh, recent lawsuit is that perhaps there were multiple people, and perhaps Craig was one of those people. I he's maintained that um, throughout. Could be. Mm. It could be that. And uh, other individuals were the more libertarian. That's uh, it's totally possible. But but what I will say about it is, does it matter? Like that's I've been I've been playing with that whole thing. Is it better or uh, let's put it like this? It clearly it does matter. It does matter and it does change things. But the question is, is it better for Craig to be Satoshi or for someone to be Satoshi or for no one to ever be Satoshi? And I almost feel like, you know, with my sort of understanding of Jungian psychology, my understanding of history and and how movements travel and move, that historically movements that have apocryphal or mythological types of figures at their head Mm. tend to be stronger and more sustainable than movements that have actual individuals. So I don't know. If he is... You know, well, let me ask you, what do you think would change as you look at the landscape? Let's say Craig, let's say it was definitively proved that Craig Wright, Craig Wright was Satoshi. Mm-hmm. How do you think that would change the the scene? Well, I think regardless of how much evidence you brought to the fore, there'd be certain individuals that just would not accept it, uh, as is classically shown with, you know, Flat Earth or whatever other topic you want to go into. How it would change the scene? I think some people do want to have an authoritative figure, and when they see someone they can look up to, this is just the mindset of the masses, and they 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 can set their their belief towards someone rather than having to think for themselves. It makes life easier for them. But I think as far as in the spirit of libertarianism, having an individualistic mindset, people that aren't into authority figures, I think the people that are the key for this movement, it doesn't matter. The only reason it matters is because we're human. We're, we're curious, right? And because I I just find there is so much um, divide that goes on with this. I'd be, I'm in complete agreement with you in regards to the circumstantial evidence that can go either way. I've read, I've, I've been obsessed with this for the last few months, but when, there's also the official story, then the unofficial story. I mean, I'm the kind of person where I'm very skeptical like yourself. When I see the, the key figures that are uh, claiming to have, uh, have had... Uh, Satoshi or Craig Wright sign, um, you know, the Genesis block. This is Andres Antonopoulos, John Matonis, Gavin Andreessen, then his, uh, his friend, this Matthew's character. And then to take on that, like to me, when I look at, if I wasn't looking at that kind of evidence and I was just looking at the, uh, the circumstances around things, I think it could go either way. I mean, complete agreement with you. But when you look at the official evidence, and which is, there's a bit of like, it's a bit squirrely, the the fact mm-hmm. that he signed a um, basically he's he signed something with a public key and could have been fraudulent and then you look at the right. the unofficial story I'm inclined to think well 
what's going on here? And I, I truly believe that because there is so much divide, there are some people that just don't want to believe it, others that do. Um, regardless of what happens, we're never going to get... Even if uh, Satoshi decided to move uh, uh, move his coins um, like he was, he was going to do initially, I think there'd always still be people that would not believe that it was him. So... It really, no, it's either way. It's just, it's not going to matter. But I happen to be in the camp where, to me, when you look at the actual Evans and you trace the story, to me, it seems pretty obvious what's going on. But it, it there is also a lot of like fuckery afoot, so to speak. Mm-hmm. No, I, I, I agree. I, it's, uh, you know, I think that the the question is for those who believe Craig to be Satoshi and i mean i i guess i would probably fall in the camp where i believe he's at least somehow tangentially associated or or has some idea at least of of who Satoshi is am i uh you know i would i want Craig to be Satoshi like that's the real <laughs> that's the real question you know it's yeah. uh it's uh I don't think Craig wants to be Satoshi, though. Understandably. I don't think anyone that has any intelligence wants to be. Right. So, so you know, I think that that one's going to be that one's going to be open and it may, you know, he may take that one to the grave. Sure. And sure, sure. I, think, I think that that's probably it's probably a better situation. I don't. It's weird to me that. It's weird to me that, you know, his. His motivation for wanting to be involved with Bitcoin Cash is very, very clear. And mm-hmm. that is that there are things that he wants to happen uh, with Bitcoin, including turning some of these opcodes on that would be – would not happen because of the centralization of BTC, uh, basically because uh, the core development team is under one company and they have a vision – and turning these opcodes on and doing some of the things that Craig wants to do uh, that would help him to actually have some intellectual property associated with this are not things that are going to be done on BTC. And so that's what his motivation for being involved on the Bitcoin Cash side is. I just don't understand why his name gets brought up because I'm like, what code has this dude contributed at any time, I mean, I, I, is he mining? I'm not sure. Like, I know he's got a lot of like old Bitcoin, so he's like quite. He's a Bitcoin, at least millionaire, if not billionaire, because he's got a lot of old Bitcoin. So it's like, why? Why is his name continually brought up? And then, like, I get Jihan Wu, and mm-hmm. then Roger's name being brought up. Like, you know, the, for instance, there was a, a tweet that somebody made where they had brought up Cointext, and. Then somebody responded, and it wasn't even in a negative way. Yeah. It was actually a supporter, and it's how far you know. I, I see how far this propaganda goes to where it's, it was like mention Roger, Seems and I, I responded. I said, yeah. "Why?" It was the the tweet was it was nice. It was like no matter what you think about Roger, you know these are really cool projects. And I was like, "Why would you even bring that up?" Yeah. Why are I wrote this because I I didn't even you know I wasn't participating in the politics of this. I was mm-hmm. participating in the technology side. I never even heard Roger Veer's name until late 2016, and I didn't I didn't meet him until in Arcapulco, February of 2017, and get a chance to even talk with him. So it was like I wrote most of the libraries for Cointext in 2014 and 2015. I had never heard the name Roger Veer. Like I bought him. I bought my uh, first Bitcoin in 2012, and I'm like. Roger didn't write a line of code for Cointext. 
He didn't contribute a dollar of investment. He didn't write a, a word of our white paper. Why are you mentioning his name? This is how little, like, yes, he's a proponent. There's lots of people who are proponents. He just happens to be a vocal proponent, and he happens to own Bitcoin.com mm-hmm. and, and, and Mines. But besides that, there's no barrier to entry for someone doing projects. I'm not doing this project uh, using Bitcoin Cash because because Roger Veer said anything. If Roger Veer didn't exist and I was looking at the landscape, I would still be using Bitcoin Cash. Like mm-hmm. I'm, and if Roger Veer existed and there was something else that was better suited for it, I would I would be using that regardless of Roger. Like I, who cares? Absolutely. And I think you don't care about politics. You just care about utility. Unfortunately. Most of us don't. A lot of people don't see things like that. It's always through guilt, through association. I would be, I would be very missed if I did not touch on this just briefly because we're we're coming to the one hour mark. But look, I read your book, Self Ownership. Kudos, absolutely fantastic. Uh, made it all the more enjoyable the fact that I purchased it uh, with my my Bitcoin Cash. Uh, and uh, I, I'm a big fan of the the audio and I had such a a comforting deep voice. Oh <laughs> yeah, through yes, the, yes. Uh, the 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 book there. Yeah, the, the the same guy that does the uh, the baby commercial, right? Um, did the the audio for that? Right. Fantastic. Um, uh, one thing I wanted to uh briefly, I just wanted to uh basically just give props to it. I, I love the fact that um, whereas I think most people understand the the, the basic tenet of libertarian philosophy dealing with self ownership of thyself, and they can understand. I think most of the even the the communists that I speak to, they have an acceptance that oh, clearly, well, you know, someone doesn't own me. I own myself. When it comes to the connection between ownership of yourself and ownership of property, um, whereas the, the general mindset is, you know, you apply your labor um, towards something that is unowned, and obviously you have um, more ownership of that than someone else. When it comes to uh, the limits around that, one of the things that I struggled with, and I often get a lot of criticism on with libertarian philosophy, is the idea of of owning other things. And I think you covered uh, this really well, like the, the limitations. I mean, can, are there any limitations to what you can own? Can I own natural resources? Can I own a planet? And you were very good in illustrating the criterion for which um, something would uh, would allow you to own it. And this is a topic that I think um, becomes a little very contentious in libertarian thought. A lot of communists make arguments that, look, you can't own just anything. What are you saying that, okay, well, fair enough, you can have personal ownership of something, of, let's say an item, but what are, you, are you saying you can own a planet? own an entire area because you've seen it. And when it comes to owning living beings, I think this becomes difficult. And look, look, um, I think you, you did a good job of, uh, of making a logical argument to address this topic. And um, perhaps if you could briefly, in, in short, like uh, just speak about your philosophy when it comes to um, self-ownership and when it comes to ownership of, uh, of property um, sure. and what, I guess, uh, um, allowed you to form your opinions on, on this particular thing. So, uh, you know, one important thing in discussing this, and it's how I start out the book, is that the very first essay is called A Concession. And the idea in there and starting out is to say all of these – I think that this is something that's often missed in this discussion – is all of these, whether you're a socialist, a mutualist, an anarchist, a a minarchist, a monarchist, whatever it is – Clearly, all of these social systems work. And by work, what I mean is every single one of them has proven to take a group of people and allow them to survive in an environment from one generation to the next. And some of them for thousands and thousands of years. Now, now, 
That doesn't mean that it's not on the backs of a certain per percentage of that population. It doesn't mean that there hasn't been incredible suffering. And so what it is is to say, okay, we're not, we have no grasp of what is right. Again, this is not about political solutions. This is about technological solutions. So I always look at, at organizational structures as technologies because that's what they are. These are concepts of organization that are fundamentally technologies. And so these are games that we're playing. And so when we start to look at how do, which game do we want to play, it's about, okay, how do we measure that? And for me, the measurement is, well, which game can we play that allows the greatest amount of fulfillment and the least amount of suffering for the greatest population of people? Fundamentally, what we would want is the least possible suffering for everyone. The least possible suffering and the most possible that people are with, whether you, that's why the pursuit of happiness is a pretty good term, right? Mm -hmm. that, the, that everybody has the opportunity to pursue happiness and we reduce suffering as low as we possibly can. Okay. When I look at the landscape of the, the basic frameworks, let's say, that we have come up with as human beings so far that create that sort of situation on a grand scale. To me, what that looks like is the least government involvement and the freest markets tends to provide that. That isn't to say there isn't suffering. Absolutely not. That isn't to say that things can't be better. That's a good thing, that you can actually make some improvements, and the free market is very good at making improvements. But what it is to say is that when you have centralized planning and markets that are not free, the historical evidence has gone straight to the fact that it's maximum suffering. That is maximum suffering for the maximum number of people and the least amount of happiness. So I just put that one right away. For whatever shortcomings you say the free market has, I'm like, okay, let's find technology. Okay, if those are bugs, let's fix the bugs. Let's fix the bugs. But there's no other framework that is better to work with. So what I wanted to get into with that is that where I see one of the biggest bugs, and when we're talking about this goes to the, owner, the idea of ownership, is that when we start to define what are the boundaries that we want to draw around ownership, what my rubric or my metric for drawing those boundaries is, okay, what boundaries can we draw where we can have a society that can settle claims? So you're going to have claim conflict. You're going to have somebody say, this is mine and this is mine. What societies or what, what system can we put in place? What are the rules of the game where you can actually have a society where everything that someone can make a claim to being owned, we can arbitrate peacefully? That we don't need to involve state violence, which for socialism, it's mandatory. It's mandatory. To, in order to have an equal distribution of property, you're going to have to have state violence. You're going to have to have violence because human beings being what they are, some are going to have more, some are going to have less, and those that have more are not just willingly going to give up the more that they have to the people who have less, particularly because uh, any human being who is accruing and acquiring value and wealth over time is also probably a human being who has a long time horizon, right? So... These are savings for a rainy day. If I give up what I have, yeah, okay, yeah, maybe I have a whole bunch, but shit may be terrible. 
three years from now, and I'm going to need this, and then it's going, going to reduce severely, or I'm going to need to pass this on to my children. How about that? I'd like to pass something on to my children. That's a normal human reaction. And so anybody who's acquiring wealth, and, and if they're doing it in a free market, they're doing it because they're solving the problems of other people and other people are paying them to do it. They're, mm-hmm. if, if they're accruing wealth that way, if you want to even out the scales and take that wealth and give it to somebody else, you're going to have to use violence. And so that's what I go through. And what I came up with is basically as a prerequisites for ownership, because this is as I read Austrian economics, I was like, yes, yes, yes. But you skip over what is ownership. You never it's never defined. It's never, you can read Mises, you can read Hayek, you can read Rothbard. It's like property is that which is owned. Okay, what's ownership? What are the things that you can own? What are the things that you can't own? Because if if the, you can just own anything, I mean, can you own human beings? Like, is then a human being property? Like, how, and then how do you yeah. say you can't own human beings? And then where does that stop? And then, but, but you kind of say, we kind of treat children like property. Like, how does that work? So these were, this is what I wanted to, to delve into. And that's what the book is about. But the three prerequisites that I came up with that were, I wanted to have things that were self-evident in terms of nobody would disagree that even, uh, a communist who said, oh, well, you can have personal property would basically agree with the ideas of, well, what are the things that absolutely cannot be owned? What what are the th- the requisites that something has to have? So the first one is, and these are self-evident, I, at least I believe, and as so far the criticisms have been, okay, these are self-evident. One, I have to know it exists in order for me to make a claim on, a, on and say, this is mine, right? So let's say this can. I say, this can is mine. In order for me to do that, clearly, self-evident, I have to know the can exists, right? Otherwise, I can't make a claim on something that doesn't exist because what is it that I'm claiming, right? So that's the first thing. Um, Drawing from out of that, I have to have the ability to actually interact with the can in some way. Otherwise, it's, it's just a moot point. So I might say, oh, I own, you know, star 2A34 in the, you know, Horsehead Nebula. Who cares? Like it's it's a completely moot point. No human being has the ability to even interact with that with that star or a planet on that star. There could be a whole species of of creatures living there. Whatever, I can't stop them from uh, taking advantage of property on that that planet. And to the same uh, to the same effect, something else that creates a moot point is I also have to have the capability to actually. It has to be within the realm of physical possibilities that I can defend a claim. It doesn't necessarily mean that if somebody manages to take this can from me, say by force or by fraud, that it's no longer mine. But what it is to say is if this can is on that planet and there's all those people walking around and they can just pick it up and it's out of the realm of physical possibility for me to do anything about this can. Again, my claim uh, on this can is it's moot. It's simply moot. So if you have those three things, uh, those can all we can deal with arbitration because from there we can that's the reason for that's the why for why uh, the Lockean idea of original appropriation works. That's the why for. So you start at this place and then you draw backwards, 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 backwards. So how mm-hmm. you draw backwards is you say, OK, how would we do this personally, uh, uh, peacefully? How do we assess who owns what peacefully? Well, we do this. We embody this. It's some method of provenance, some method of 
I own it now. Let's trace back the, the line of ownership, right? So you say like with a car, you've got the title and you can trace the title back. With a home, you can go down and pull the record of title from until the time that the house was built. You can see who all of the owners were. These are things that we can record. And for the most part, this works great. We embody this. We do it all the time. We transfer ownership with receipts, with bills of sale. This is why we use these things, right? We know how this works. We do it every day peacefully. It works. Okay, great. So that's a great system. So now when we trace it back, we trace it back to who was that first person? Who was the original owner? This is where Lockean appropriation comes in. Because clearly, if we're all accepting that like, oh, this idea of title and like, it's mine because you gave it to me and I can prove that you gave it to me and, and you can prove that you bought it because you have the receipt, like this works. How do we do this first owner? Well, so far, the only way and the way that makes logical sense and the way that is completely rational is this idea of, well, it's got to be related to labor. It's got to be an unowned item plus my labor. And because so the unowned item plus my labor becomes my item. Well, since I didn't own the item, but yet ownership becomes a property of this item, it must come from my labor. So that must necessarily mean, and this is, this is something that, uh, that some critics have had a problem with, is the idea of owning labor. Because I say, it must mean that you own your labor. Because otherwise, ownership itself just sprung out of nowhere. There has to be some original way that that property was placed there. You own your labor, and this is the reason why. What is labor? Well, labor is a manifestation of your body and your mind in concert with each other towards a specific purpose because you own your body that must mean then so now what we're doing is we're going in the opposite direction you own your labor what is your labor your labor is the property of your body and your mind well if you own your labor then that must mean that you must own that from which your labor was created you must own your body and your mind right and so then what are but what are these things it's really fundamentally, what do you own beyond that? What is your mind? What are your thoughts? So it's really, it's your thoughts and your sensations, which now we take it back into this abstract place. And that's what I do in the book is that I, I seek to trace it back. And that's the self. That's what self-ownership is all about. So if we take it from that place and then with that saying, okay, that makes sense. This is an articulation of something that we are manifesting, that we're embodying. And then you start to move it forward. Now you can move it out into a realm of, well, that's also, we're talking about morality as well. So if I, what, this is where all men are created equal comes from. If I want to create a society that is peaceful, that means that I have to recognize the individual. That means that I have to recognize this all men are created equal. That's why that was created. That's why it works. Um, so this is a rational proof of property and of morality. Using I'm, just I'm for principles, for not, not drawing on authority of anybody else, but just uh, things that people can see in their average everyday life and just tracing it back to first principles. Well, kudos, brother. I, I think the, the explanation that you give is not only principled, but it's, it's utilitarian. I think a lot of the, the issues some people have with libertarianism is they think of it as too dogmatic and don't see the practicality of it. So I like the fact that you went in that direction and makes it uh, – um, usable to the, the the general public so kudos once again i think you've done an amazing job with it i look forward to your next uh 
book part two, which you're writing in that. And uh, I, I'm yet to check out uh, The Down of the Gigolo. Well, perhaps uh, I, I would love to have you on another time in the future. You've been very generous with your time, brother. I, I really appreciate that. Um, I, I try to keep these things down to uh, down to an hour. Um, otherwise, I tend to waffle on and you know the the short attention span of the uh, generation. No, no, no problem, man. No problem. But, um, <laughs> uh, but <laughs> Vin, you are a scholar. You are a gentleman. I, I appreciate. Uh, your your activism tremendously. I've been following your podcast for the, the, the last several months, and I, I like the way that you approach things. You know, even when I disagree with you, I like you as a person. The fact that you're logical, you're consistent with your your arguments, and uh, bro, I just want to salute you. Uh, I, I I can't think of enough superlatives to uh, to to give you. So, uh, brother, thank you once again. I look forward to uh, to watching your your podcast and checking out your stuff. And one of these days, I might head down to Anaka. Uh, the, the conference, Anarchapolco, Anarchapolco, absolutely. You got to. You got to. But uh, Ben, I will, I will definitely plug the hell out of your your book, uh, Self Ownership, and uh, I have it up on my my podcast, which you'll you can check. I'll put the link. Uh, I'll I'll share it on Twitter. I'll tag you so you can uh, you can post that out there. And uh, brother, was there anything that you wanted to to share before I, I wind this thing down? No, I mean, if people want to check me out, they could go to vinarmani.com. That's a pretty good jumping off point for everything. My podcast is there. The book is there. Uh, our newsletter, Counter Markets, is there. Uh, if people want to check out Cointext, which is the, the SMS service we were talking about, they can go. Our public beta is uh, March 27th. It's going to launch, and it's going to launch in... Uh, well, we're already in U.S. with the private beta. We're already in U.S., Canada, U.K., and Australia private beta is going to add South Africa, Netherlands, Sweden, and now we've also decided we're going to add Israel, Ireland, and New Zealand. Uh, eventually, awesome. with, by the end of the year, rolling out to 54 countries with the total population of about 5.1 billion people. So that's our that's our year goal. But people could go to Cointex.io if they're in any of those initial countries that I mentioned, uh, particularly Australia. It's been very popular there. So uh, you can sign up for the public beta, and you'll get notification of how to use it on the 27th. Fantastic. So that's it, man. Thank you. Thank you, brother, for having me on. It's been great. Well, thank you. I, I just want to put it out there, by the way. I'm completely on board with the whole uh, with what you're doing, Cointex. Bitcoin Cash all the way. In the spirit of uh, Rick Fal- Falvinge, I think, I-, I listened to one of the po- podcasts where he was speaking about how he made himself the CEO of Bitcoin Cash. I decided to play the little game, and I now consider myself the, the MC slash deputy treasurer, even though I have no understanding of, uh, <laughs> of economics, really, of uh, Bitcoin Cash. And uh, I- I've been plugging this thing, man. So uh, I- I'm definitely on board. Um, yeah, I'll... I'll- I'll, I'll link up with you in a moment. I'm just going to wind this podcast down. If, if you, I'd love Great, for you man. to give me the details on the coin text there. And uh, okay. Vin Armani, thank you once again. It is a pleasure having you on the Crystal Journey podcast. I look forward to hearing more from you, my brother. I salute you. Thanks, Boom. All right. See you later. See you, brother. Be in touch. Ladies and gentlemen, there you have it. Vin Armani, a scholar, a gentleman. It has been an absolute pleasure having him on the Crystal Journey podcast. Uh, I've learned so much talking to this guy. Um, I think regardless of uh, whether or not you agree with uh, with everything that Vince sa- says, he is someone that really understands his craft. This guy is well-versed in so many different things. I mean, if you check out his book, Self-Ownership, you realize that this guy has a deep understanding of philosophy, libertarian ideals, um, has a deep understanding of technology. And the fact that this guy is drawing from so many different disciplines, I think, um, really gives him a, a thorough understanding of of how the world works. So he's he's definitely a, a huge source for wisdom for me. 
and uh, I've definitely learned a lot checking out his stuff. Uh, there is his book, Self Ownership, which you can purchase, as he said, on the binarmani.com website. It is available in audio. It's available. Uh, you can get a signed copy from him. Uh, I think it's a great idea selling that via cryptocurrencies uh, in the spirit of whole crypto savagery. Ladies and gentlemen, freaks and geeks, this is the Crucial Journey podcast. Uh, we've gone a little over uh, an hour here. I want to keep this thing nice and tight. Be sure to let me know what you thought of the podcast, any comments that you have in regards to what we spoke about or just ideas for the podcast, podcast guests. I appreciate the hell out of it. Ladies and gentlemen, until next time, peace out, keep it real. This is the Crucial Journey podcast. Ow!